A re-elected United Conservative Party government will pass legislation to force addicts who are a danger to themselves or others into treatment. The London Public Library is refusing to rent theatre space to an academic freedom group, claiming a planned lecture on free speech goes against the library's policy on workplace harassment. The Trudeau government has conceded that there could be more Chinese police stations operating in Canada. Hello Canada, it's Tuesday, May 16th. And this is the True North Daily Brief. I'm Rachel Emanuel. And I'm Lindsay Shepard. We've got you covered with all the news you need to know. Let's discuss the top stories of the day and the True North exclusives you won't hear anywhere else. UCP leader Danielle Smith announced on Monday that a re-elected United Conservative Party government would pass legislation to force addicts who are a danger to themselves or others into treatment. The Compassionate Intervention Act would be the first involuntary treatment law in Canada to specifically target addiction. Smith said the act would allow a family member, doctor, psychologist, or police officer to make a petition to a specially appointed non-criminal judge to issue a treatment order. Treatment orders would vary, but could include evidence-based medication treatment, outpatient counseling, medical detox, inpatient addiction treatment, or attendance in an inpatient treatment program. Smith was flanked by families and individuals touched by addiction as she made the comprehensive mental health and addictions announcement. Recovered addict Abby Plessa said her family saved her life after she fell into addiction for six years at just 12 years old. I asked Abby what her response is to those who call forced treatment inhumane. Here's what that sounded like. Rachel Emanuel is True North. I wanted to actually ask one of the um, people in recovery a question, maybe Abby, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you for sharing your testimony today. Uh, Premier Smith has just spoken extensively about the constitutionality of this. I'm wondering what your response to be would be to someone who says that to force an addict into treatment is inhumane. Yeah, um, I, I think for myself, um, I, I thought going into treatment, not under obviously my own will, was inhumane. Um, but to be quite frank and honest, the only reason I thought that was because I wanted to continue doing what I was doing, um, which was using drugs, right? I, like I said, I didn't want anyone or anything to get in the way of me and my drug use. And to be honest, I don't think any addict would want that, right? Because um, I mean, in, a, in addiction, it's a disease, it's a brain disease, um, it's a it's a mental health mental health issue. And I think for myself and speaking for um, some other people here in recovery, I needed that intervention regardless of in the moment if I thought it was inhumane or not, because I know um, afterwards, after leaving treatment, after being recovered and becoming sane again, um, I was extremely grateful. And I know there's a lot of other people that were extremely grateful uh, to be given that opportunity rather than saying, oh, well, they don't want the help. So, uh, you know, we're not going to help them. Right. Uh, I don't think any addict necessarily wants the help. um, And that's even more reason why we need to give it to them. So, Lindsay, we actually talked about this on the show a couple weeks ago because it was revealed that the UCP government was looking into this policy after the Globe and Mail filed an access to information request, and it revealed that this had been something that they had actually been studying. And I said at the time, I suspect they would need a strong majority government to pass such a piece of legislation, indeed, even to introduce it. 
Now we know that the party is actually campaigning on it. I think that speaks to how big the topic of public safety is in the election right now. It's one of the main issues people are thinking about and focusing on. I think the party wants jobs and economy to be the ballot box question. I'm not convinced that it is. Just coming out of two years of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a lot of concerns on people's minds, and I know that public safety is one of them. I'm really interested for your perspective, Lindsay, because you're obviously living in BC and they have such a different approach to the drug crisis and the addictions crisis. How do you think something like this fares up to what's going on in BC and would you support such a piece of legislation like this in your province? Right. Well, this announcement of the legislation, the Compassionate Intervention Act in Alberta, this is coming on the tail of an attack earlier this month where 33-year-old Muaratar Mashar stabbed to death Caroline Robillard and her 11-year-old child. And we know now that this man, Mashar, he had a long history of charges for violent attacks. For over a decade, he was in and out of jail, and he was living close to the school where he had attempted to enter it, and then he ended up fatally stabbing this mother and her child, which is so tragic. Um, This happened in Edmonton. Now, in BC, there has been a move over the last um, couple decades away from institutionalization of, you know, these violent, you know, people who could be a danger to society, a danger to themselves because of mental illness, addiction, um, homelessness. So famously, there was a, a mental hospital or mental institution in Coquitlam, BC, that closed in 2012 with this move away from institutionalization. And now the focus seems to be on handing out safe drugs and letting these people continue what they're doing, whether they're addicts or or whatever, let them continue what they're doing. And recently in, in BC, on the streets of the downtown east side in Vancouver, which is, you know, the worst postal code in North America... Uh, for all of those issues above, homelessness, addiction, mental health. They've been doing these street sweeps where they just bulldoze through the street. They close it off. They throw these people's things in dumpsters and they tell these people to move along. Well, they have nowhere to go because there are no institutions for them to go to. So they just end up back in encampments. Um, So that is not going to work. So that is to say, you know, this makes Alberta may look a lot more appealing to people like me, to be honest, because BC's approach is not working. And it really is nice to see someone like Premier Daniel Smith being tough on this issue and introducing legislation that makes sense and makes Alberta look desirable as somewhere to move for someone like me. You raised a lot of really good points, and I think something that we have to mention whenever we talk about safe supply is that safe supply is really just causing this trickle-down effects where certain individuals are able to go into pharmacies and get these prescription drugs. Often they don't want the prescription drugs they can get for free. What often ends up happening is they turn around and they sell these drugs on the streets to people that are not eligible for the prescription, and then they use that money to buy harder drugs. Because the thing about a drug addict is you're constantly chasing that best high that you've ever had, and you're usually not getting it from these prescription drugs. I would encourage all of our listeners to watch Aaron Gunn's new documentary, Canada is Dying. I know Vancouver is Dying blew up when that was released. I have seen a small preview of Canada is Dying. He's currently doing some premieres 
in the West Coast right now. He did some in BC. Now he's in Alberta doing some. So I'm going to see the rest of it later this week. But I did see a small clip of it. And what I saw, and it was absolutely explosive. And it was revealing what I just spoke about. And yesterday at the press conference, Mike Ellis, he was the former Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Now he is the Minister for Public Safety. Of course, we're in an election campaign. So we generally just refer to people by their UCP candidate status. But he was a police officer on the streets. He has a lot of experience dealing with this type of stuff. And he was saying exactly what I was just telling you about. And that is that these drugs are ending up on the streets and they're causing a greater supply of drugs on the streets. And the other really scary thing is they're ending up in the hands of 12 and 13 year olds. And that girl that spoke yesterday, she began a drug addiction when she was just 12. So we are seeing really young people getting access to this stuff and it is potent and it is dangerous for their brains. And it's something that's not being discussed enough. It's something that's not being really talked about at all. I hope that will change after this documentary is released and I hope just as many people watch it as watch the first one. I had the opportunity to ask Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley what she thought about this policy. I thought it was interesting that her answer changed a little bit from the first time it was revealed that the UCP government was even thinking about this. Initially, when it was revealed that this was a policy that was on the table, she said that the legislation was too punitive and was doomed to failure both from a treatment perspective and a legal one. Now, her comments yesterday weren't polar opposite, but they weren't as strong. She didn't say it was doomed to failure from a legal perspective, and she didn't say it was too punitive. She simply said she's hearing from experts that forced treatment doesn't work. She said that Daniel Smith failed to consult on the legislation, as Daniel Smith often does. Those are her words, not mine. So I, again, I had a follow-up question and I asked her, well, how do you square this considering that Danielle Smith was flanked by families and individuals who said forced treatment worked for them and saved their life and saved the lives of a family member, including that one girl, Abby Plessa, who shared her testimony, which was so powerful and said that my family saved my life because they forced me into treatment. I didn't think that Rachel Notley really had a good answer for this. She simply said, well, we're hearing from other folks. We're hearing from other experts. So obviously there is some disagreement on this issue, but it is a very powerful thing when you hear from someone who says, I would not be alive today if my family had not put me into treatment. And I've spent a lot of time covering Marshall Smith. He is Daniel Smith's chief of staff. He was brought over from BC to really run the mental health and addictions file. And he said the exact same thing. He was living on the streets of Vancouver as a homeless drug addict for years. When he was arrested and police essentially told him you can go to jail or you can go to treatment He chose treatment and he said that that really saved his life. So not really a strong answer from Notley on this. I am very interested to see how this is going to go over with the general public here in Alberta. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The London Public Library is refusing to rent theater space to an academic freedom group. The Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, or SAFs, was barred from booking a space at London, Ontario's public library, for a May 19th talk by British author Joanna Williams, titled Sex, Gender, and the Limits of Free Speech on Campus. The library claims SAF's planned lecture on free speech goes against the library's policy on workplace harassment and poses a risk of, quote, 
physical danger. In an email chain between SAFs and the P London Public Library provided to True North, library staff asked SAFs to review details about William's talk, including PowerPoint slides and a lecture outline, to make an assessment of the event. SAFs president, Mark Mercer, a philosophy professor at St. Mary's University in Halifax, provided samples of other talks Williams has given. Nine days later, the library's meeting and events coordinator, Robert Giorgini, told Mercer, as per the library's policies governing room rentals, we are not able to approve the rental request. In an email to True North, Williams said the library's decision proves the point she intended to make in her talk about the threats to free speech. Williams wrote, quote, By refusing to host some debates but not others, these institutions are effectively taking sides, curtailing free speech, and limiting the terrain of public debate. Now, Rachel, I think the first op-ed I ever wrote for True North uh, back when I started in 2019, it was titled Public Libraries, the New Free Speech Battlegrounds. Uh, and here we are four years later. Back then, I wrote about how the Vancouver Public Library was kind of flip-flopping on hosting Megan Murphy, who's a famous, uh, she's famous for previously being a radical feminist. I don't know if she would call herself that anymore. And she was trying to deliver a presentation on a very similar topic to um, the one Joanna Williams is wanting to give in London, uh, gender identity, ideology, and women's rights. Um, that ended up going ahead in Vancouver, but now, four years later, this is pretty unprecedented, where the London, Ontario Library has actually just chosen to not host this talk by Joanna Williams. And of course, uh, ironically, the topic, again, is sex, gender, and the limits of free speech on campus. Rachel, what do you make of this? I'm not surprised to see that this happened. I talk all the time about how we are seeing an exclusion of certain thoughts from society, especially when it comes to, interestingly, free speech, but also the topic of sex and gender. It's just so touchy where you can bring it up, when and how. But the reason that this story is especially so concerning is because it's happening at an actual library. A library is a place that should encourage discussion and should encourage debate and education. And the fact that a public library, which taxpayers are paying for, is barring this event really speaks to their own agenda. It speaks to their own ideology. But I also think it speaks to the fact that as a member of society, if you decide to get engaged, and maybe one of the ways you want to get engaged is simply by volunteering to be on your library board, it can be very impactful. I find it a little bit frustrating how many people I know complain about the state of their society today and how many decisions they disagree with like this one but don't actually volunteer any of their own time to make things better. You know, volunteer for a political party, volunteer on your school board, volunteer on your public library board. So I think this is one of those things where this was a decision that was probably made by just a handful of people. And I think if people who are seeing these types of signs written in the sand, as you saw already years ago, Lindsay, could speak up and get involved and take action against it, we could actually start to really push back on this type of thing in society. Right. And libraries are places of ideas. That's where you would go to explore different ideas amongst the thousands of books that the library has. And, you know, part of the library mandate is they also have meeting rooms where people can discuss current topics. Um, another aspect to this is not everyone has access to university facilities. Ever since I graduated, yeah, you know, you don't really have privileges to host meetings or presentations on university grounds anymore. Not to mention that 
universities have generally changed their policies anyway so that they absolutely would never allow anything controversial. You know, free speech at the university, pretty much dead. You can't even book meeting rooms if you want to talk about anything controversial. But now, you know, public libraries are accessible to the more general public, people who might not have money to pay university tuition. And now we're seeing a closing off of conversations to them too, just to the general public, to everyone. It's kind of sad to think about what libraries have become because whenever I go, let's say, into the kids section of a library, also bookstores, they're both ideologically captured. I was at the Kitchener Public Library the other day in Ontario when I was visiting. And on display, like I've seen a million times at libraries and bookstores, on display, on feature is always, you know, the the anti-racist baby, activist baby, you know, like the board books that are very ideological you know, me and my two dads, it's always those on feature. And fine, you can have those books, but it it just really shows the ideological capture that that is always what they choose to feature. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino has conceded that there could be more Chinese police stations operating in Canada, despite claiming last month that they had all been shut down by the RCMP. Mendicino made the omission on CTV's question period on Sunday, when he was asked about the reports that said stations in question continue to exist. Mendicino said, quote, I am confident that the RCMP have taken concrete action to disrupt any foreign interference in relationship to those so-called police stations, and that if new police stations are popping up and so on, that they will continue to take decisive action going forward. Our expectation is that if those activities manifest, If there is foreign interference, that yes, the RCMP will take decisive action as they have in the past. The allegation of the Chinese police stations first surfaced earlier this year based on a report by a Spanish human rights organization called Safeguard Defenders. The report claimed that the Chinese government had set up more than 100 police stations in over 50 countries as part of a global campaign to persuade people to return to China to face charges. In May, the RCMP announced it was investigating four groups across the country for allegedly being used by the Chinese government to harass or coerce people identified as fugitives or dissidents. The Chinese government has since denied the allegations and said that the police stations were legitimate service centers for overseas Chinese citizens. Some of the groups under investigations have confirmed that they are providing legal assistance or consular services to their members. Two of the groups located in Montreal recently told the Canadian press that they had not received any closure requests from the RCMP and that their activities were proceeding normally. The statement from Mendicino is such a disaster. Every time he talks, it just makes the Liberal government look worse. I rarely understand what he says. He's so unclear. He's so unfit for the job that he's in. It is really quite unbelievable. But again, this whole story is unbelievable. How do we have more Chinese police stations operating in Canada? They just seem to have shut down a whole bunch operating in the GTA. And now there's news that there's more and the government isn't really super sure if they exist or what to do about it. Over in the US, the FBI actually arrested people over these Chinese police stations. I don't know why we're not seeing the same thing happening here in Canada. It's insane that there's foreign interference operating in our country and it's just kind of going on ahead and maybe, maybe if we're lucky, our federal government will close it down. What's your take on this, Lindsay? I think the average Canadian, and I would consider myself amongst, you know, these average Canadians, we don't know the extent to which there is a parallel society in Canada of the Chinese diaspora. And I'm not saying they're all perpetrators of crime. Some of them are the victims, as evidenced 
from what you were saying that there are people being questioned at these, you know, dissidents being questioned at these police stations. But there are Chinese frequented um, birth tourism centers in Richmond, British Columbia. There are whole networks of Chinese money laundering in Vancouver casinos, as was written about in the book Willful Blindness by Sam Cooper. Um, There were allegations that Chinese international students were being bused to the liberal nomination meeting of Han Dong, who has now resigned as a liberal MP, to vote for him. And, you know, all of this is happening here, and we probably don't even know the extent to this parallel society. That's it for today, and don't forget to check in at www.tnc.news throughout the day for all the news you need to know. And if you're able, please consider supporting independent media. You can do that over at donate.tnc.news. Thanks for listening and have a great day.